Uh, If you can take your Bible, please, and turn with me to John chapter 14. Navigate your, your electronic device, if necessary, to John chapter 14. I recently finished a compelling biography on uh, George Mueller, a man most famously known for his orphan house ministry in the UK uh, during the 19th century. His story is well documented how he set out to care for orphans by providing food shelter, clothing, and a good education for each child uh, the Lord brought his way. How he did so with the expressed intent of, of, uh, of training each child in the fear and admonition of the Lord, sharing the gospel with each child, praying over each child how he never, never publicized their many financial needs, never fundraised in any way, how he trusted the Lord daily, sometimes literally moment by moment, to care for him, for his family, for his staff, and for the would-be thousands of children under his care. The stories are incredible. They are incredible how God supplied their every need and prospered their work, but how he rarely, rarely gave them any excess but chose instead to meet their material needs at the exact moment of their need. I mean, it really was daily bread. So, for example, they'd, they'd, they'd wake up in the morning sometimes. <laughs> I mean, just put yourself in this position. They'd wake up in the morning sometimes, and they would have absolutely no food. They'd have nothing to feed the hundreds of children who, in an hour, will be gathering in the dining hall for breakfast. So they'd pray. And there'd be a knock at the door. And it's the baker. And he just happened to have some extra loaves of bread. And then a few minutes would pass, and the milkman shows up with fresh milk. Ten minutes later, Some lady with a farm down the road brings a bucket of fresh eggs. 
and then someone else shows up after that with some slab of meat of some sort. And none of these individuals communicated with each other. None of them knew Mueller's particular need at that particular time. They were simply responding to these impulses to give that God had placed upon their hearts. They were just God's means of provision by which he faithfully answered Mueller's prayers. They were, and these, this is just one story of dozens of stories. I mean, there were times literally when, when I put the book down and I stepped away and I audibly said, no way, no way can this be true. But it was true. It is true, and the, there are literally hundreds of accounts that corroborate and testify and verify its truth. If you want to be encouraged, listen, if you want to be encouraged in your faith, and if you want to be empowered or emboldened in your prayer, you've got to read George Mueller. He was a, great, he was a man of great ambition for the Lord, great faith in the Lord, and great prayer to the Lord. What I didn't know, however, and what you may not know, is the reason why he set out to do this. You see, Mueller was a pastor before he began his orphan house ministry. And one thing he'd observed time and again, he observed from the people of his own congregation, other congregations and other churches and even his own community, he, he just observed time and time again how easily we neglect the promises of God. That when the rubber met the road, when the trials came and the rubber met the road and, and, uh, and, and it seemed like you had nowhere to turn, how the people so often turned to themselves. They took matters into their own hands. And they began striving in their own strength. And they began inviting just incessant cares of the world into their own heart. Their own hearts. There's no doubt that, that Mueller's heart broke for those children. No doubt. These kids who bereaved of their parents had, had no one to care for them. There's no doubt that his Christian faith wouldn't allow him to turn a blind eye or a deaf ear to their need. But the main reason, the main reason he began that orphan house, house ministry by his own testimony, because, listen, he wanted to show people that God is faithful. He wanted to show the world that God can be trusted. Hear this. He wanted to show the Christian world that God can be trusted. So he and all those who partnered with him experienced the powerful promises of God in ways, frankly, that, that most people do not. 
And I share this because we come to a portion of Scripture this morning that contains two powerful promises given by the Lord Jesus to any and all who truly believe Him. They are unbelievable statements, each intended to be trusted and personally applied. And so I just want to read it together, just three verses this morning. John chapter 14, verses 12 through 14. This is, this is Jesus speaking. Truly, truly. In other words, take it to the bank. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I'm going to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Father, thank you for this time in your word. Please help us to hear your word. We believe these words before us this morning are the actual words of Jesus Christ and that, that he He's speaking them to us today as much as he spoke to those disciples in that day. And so, Father, please, please, please give us ears to hear this morning and hearts to receive their truth and the necessary faith to believe their truth and to live our lives accordingly by faith in Jesus Christ. For we ask it in his name. Amen. I have just two points this morning. The will, I'm, we'll do it in order. The work and will of Christ. Okay? We're going to look at the work of Christ, the will of Christ. 
And my guiding thought is this. Because God is faithful, let us participate in the work of Christ and pray in the will of Christ, forever exalting the name of Christ to the glory of God our Father. Well, we remember that Jesus <coughs> has been calling for faith. The entire book of John is, in fact, one great call to faith. From one chapter to the next, from one encounter to the next, one location to the next, John presents Jesus Christ as the Son of God and Savior of the world, compelling us to believe in Him and find life in His name. And throughout this gospel, Jesus Himself has been calling for faith. For saving faith by calling unbelievers to turn from their sins. And hear this, uh, calling for sustaining faith by, by calling uh, believers to turn from their fears and doubts. So he's calling unbelievers and believers alike to believe. This is the recurring theme of John's gospel. And so it's no surprise that chapter 14 actually begins in like manner. Very, very first uh, uh, verse, believe in God, Jesus says, believe also in me. And we remember that he's speaking here to his closest disciples. These are men he, he handpicked. Uh, these were the, the men uh, who would soon become apostles in the first church. Already these men followed him. Already they trusted him. Already they believed in him, yet still he's calling them to believe. To believe even more. Jesus intends to strengthen their belief. You see, he wants the roots of their belief uh, to grow deeper. He wants their faith to grow stronger. He knows uh, their faith needs to grow stronger because their world is about to be turned upside down. It's the eve of the cross. In less than 24 hours, all hell will have broken loose. Jesus will be betrayed, denied, tried, beaten, falsely accused, convicted, tortured, and sentenced to die. Stakes will be mercilessly driven through his hands and feet as he's stretched out on a Roman cross to be publicly scorned and shamed. Much worse will be the bearing of sin by which he, though sinless, will endure God's just wrath toward sin in full measure. He will die and it will seem as though all Hope has died with him in less than 24 hours. His cold, abused, disfigured, lifeless body will be placed in a borrowed grave. What will become of their faith then? 
And so how does Jesus prepare them for not only what's about to happen, but also prepare them for the rest of their lives and for the lives who follow after them? Answer, he emboldens their faith with a stunning promise of great purpose. Verse 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do and greater works than these will he do because I am going to the Father. So he first assures them that he's returning to the Father. He's helping them to look beyond his death and the despairing circumstances of the next few days. You see, he's reminding them that he will rise from the dead. He will ascend to heaven from which he came to be with God, their heavenly Father. And then returning to the Father in heaven, he wants them to continue his work on earth. He talks about doing works like His, but even greater works than His. Not greater in in terms of uh, uh, more powerful or of greater magnitude, because we could never supersede the greatness of King Jesus. No, he's talking about greater in terms of their essence their extent. Jesus isn't calling them to do uh, great miracles in the physical realm, healings and such, though that happened on occasion as we read in the book of Acts. Uh, He's talking about the spiritual realm and the greatest miracle of them all, the one great miracle to which all other miracles point, the miraculous conversion of a person who was utterly dead in their sins, lost to God and destined for hell, yet by God's grace is made alive with Christ and seated with Him in heaven forever. That's the essence of this great work to which Jesus was now calling them. The essence of their work would be the sharing of the gospel to the salvation of many. And the extent of this work would would spread from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria and to the uttermost parts of the known world after Christ's death, resurrection, and ascension to heaven and upon the Uh, the coming of the Holy Spirit in power, these 11 men, these 11 men to which he now spoke would be instrumental in bringing the gospel of Christ to, to places all over the world for people of all sorts, including Jew and Gentile, men and women, Slave and free, religious and irreligious, moral and immoral. I want you to think about this with me. In three to three and a half years of public ministry, Jesus garnered a following 
of about 500 disciples, give or take. But in one day, on the day of Pentecost, Peter stood and preached one sermon by which 3,000 people were saved to Christ. In one day, with just one sermon, Peter saw more people place their faith in Christ than Jesus saw in three and a half years after preaching many sermons. That's greater works. Now, was Peter a greater preacher than Jesus? Was he a better expositor of God's word? Did he have a a fuller portion of God's spirit? Of course not. He simply believed in Jesus, continued with the works of Jesus, and experienced even greater works because Jesus had promised they would. I suspect you know the application at this point. Because this promise applies as much to you and me as it did to them. We share in this great work of the gospel because the work is ongoing, it's not yet complete. So imagine with me just the joy of continuing in the work of Christ that's been passed down through Christian history. We get to work in the same way as those who went before us bringing the good news of Jesus Christ to the people in our day receiving the baton from previous generations while also passing that baton to the next. We get to participate in what Jesus has done, what Jesus is doing, and what Jesus will do in this world. Is there any greater work in which you could take part? That's greater works. And that's why we go. You know, I was thinking about the missions conference and the the theme, go, give, pray. That's why we go to people both near and far to make disciples of Jesus Christ. That's why we give. We give our time, we give our talent, we give our treasure to invest in the eternal work of God. That's why we pray. 
We pray to participate with God in what God is doing in our lives and the lives of those around us. So we go and we give and we pray with faith in Jesus because we have this great promise. Now, is it easy? No. In fact, you know, many, 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 many people lost their lives and are losing their lives today to carry on this work. Christianity has been opposed from the very beginning, from Christ to these apostles, to the early church, to the church worldwide. Hear this, but it cannot be stopped. Millions upon millions of people from all over the globe, down through the centuries to the present day, have been miraculously saved to God through the ministry and message of God's people. I want you to hear this. Do you realize, do you realize that when you testify to the Lord Jesus Christ, to the conversion of an individual, whether you are sowing or reaping, it matters not. Do you realize that when you do that, when you testify to the Lord Jesus Christ that leads to the conversion of a, of a lost soul, whether sowing the seed or reaping the harvest, it is in the Lord's sight a far greater miracle than any earthly physical sign or wonder that He Himself performed. That when that happens, when that soul is saved to Christ, that is of far greater importance to Jesus than when He healed the blind man and gave him sight. That's of far greater importance to Jesus than when He fed the 5,000 with a few loaves. That's of far greater importance to Jesus when He spoke to the grave and Lazarus came out. That's greater works. And so I just want us to know, I want me to know, I need to know this, you need to know this, we need not be ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Be not ashamed. And this powerful promise in verse 12 is immediately followed by another in verses 13 and 14. And so we have this connection. I want you to see this connection between the works of God's people. It's verse 12. This connection between the works of God's people and the prayers of God's people. And so Jesus says, Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do 
that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Early in my Christian life, when I was first learning to pray, I'm still learning to pray. We're, we're all learning to pray. But when I was first learning to pray, someone taught me the, the, the ACTS model of prayer. A-C-T-S. Anyone familiar with the ACTS model of prayer? ACTS is an acronym that, that's really just meant to, to guide your prayers. And so A stands for adoration. C stands for confession. T stands for thanksgiving. And finally, S stands for uh, supplication. And the thought behind this particular model is that it's, it's after we adore God and after we confess our sins to God and after we thank God for grace and mercy, it's then, and, and maybe even only then, when we should bring our requests to Him. And I think, honestly, I think it's a good model. I found it helpful. Sometimes I still do. I think it's a helpful pattern that cultivates necessary humility in prayer. It cultivates a, a contrition, a, a broken and contrite heart. It cultivates a, a, a worship, a heart of worship. And if you use this model, honestly, good for you. Keep it up. And if you're looking for a model to help your prayers, I think this model could be very, very beneficial to you. So I just want to be clear that I, I'm, I'm not against this model at all. I'm all for adoration of, of God and confession before God and, and thanksgiving to God and, and then supplication from God. But, but what struck me this week as I considered this text before us on this day is that Jesus moves straight to supplication. You see, with the Acts model, supplication comes last as, as if it's of least importance. Here, however, Jesus gives it tremendous importance. He's calling his disciples to the greater work of the gospel and to greater faith which, with, with which they'll carry out the work. And then he invites them to greater prayer by which the work is done. With no apparent reservation whatsoever, he invites them to ask in prayer. Uh, verse 13, whatever you ask. And verse uh, 14, if you ask me anything. Essentially, he's saying, ask me, ask away, be not uh, uh, shy or timid in your asking. Jesus is, uh, he wants and he's encouraging us to ask and to ask by faith. Now, now hang with me here. The gift of prayer is itself a tremendous gift. Think about this with me that we can enter the presence of God, that we can go to God in prayer confidently without fear of being struck down is remarkable. <clears throat> the, 
that, that we can enter the presence of holy God. Night and day, the angels, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. That we can enter the presence of, of holy God without even a hint of condemnation is stunning. That we can enter the presence of our sovereign, not as nameless, faceless subjects, but as beloved sons and daughters is astounding. But that we can do so while bringing to God our meager cares and concerns our requests and supplications, our various needs and desires, would you not agree with me that that is absolutely mind-blowing? Whatever you ask, if you ask me anything, he's using the words, whatever and anything, Now, if I were to say this, you may appreciate my sincerity, but you would not believe me. If you were to say this, I may appreciate your sentiment, but frankly, I would not believe you. Because we know that we are finite and very limited in what we can promise and ultimately deliver. That's not the case here. By using the words whatever and anything, Jesus wanted to assure them and now us that he is willing and he is without limitation. Willing to incline himself to you when you pray and without limitation so that you can pray knowing that he is able and that with God all things are possible. You know, so often our problem is that we sell God short. We question his goodness. We question his good and eternal work he's begun in our lives. We question his good promise to complete the work, even using the not good circumstances of our lives to do so. Misunderstanding God's character, we take matters into our own hands. Like those folks in Mueller's congregation, We begin striving in our own strength, especially when trials come. And we just invite untold numbers of worldly cares into our own hearts. At the end of the day, we have to ask ourselves, is God able? Is he willing?
and this verse and so many others like it offer a resounding yes for all the promises of God. What is this? This is 2 Corinthians. I'll just, just jot this down. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20. All the promises of God find their yes in Jesus Christ. Hear this. This is not a name it and claim it guarantee. Jesus is not some cosmic genie who exists for us. That's where all this can be grossly twisted and misapplied, and it is all the time, even today in our day. Jesus is not subservient to us. Jesus is not subservient to you. He is Lord of all. And so he provides two important stipulations here. First, the means by which we pray, and then the motive with which we pray. The means and the motive. We're to pray in Jesus' name. This is the means, in Jesus' name. Whatever you ask in my name, ask anything in my name. And so to pray in the name of Jesus is to understand I think at the, at the base level, it's to understand that He is our only access to God and to relationship with God. We come to know God through Jesus Christ who came from God and bore our sins in our stead to bring us to God. Therefore, this powerful promise applies only to those who believe in Christ by entrusting their lives to Christ. In other words, it's to say, I'm yours, Jesus. Whatever you want, I'm yours. And second, to pray in his name is to acknowledge who he is and what he's about. It's to appreciate his divine character and then align with his divine mission in the world. So we aren't to pray outside His will, but along with His will. The goal then always is to discern the will of God in any given situation and enter into what Jesus is doing in that situation. Ultimately, to pray in His name, ultimately, is to adore His name. His name is the name that is above every other name. Before His name, every, every knee will bow. Every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of the Father, and therein lies the motive the means of effective prayer is the name of Christ, while the motive of effective prayer is concern for the glory of God. Verse 13, that the Father 
may be glorified in the Son. We should not pray. We should not expect answers to prayers that seek our glory and selfish ambition. Praying like that is an exercise in idolatry. Idolatry comes in many forms, you know. We typically think of it in terms of worshiping something other than God, which it is. But it can also be worshiping something alongside God. Um, I just recently read the, the, the late Chuck Colson. He brought this point out in his, in his book, My Final Word, holding tight to the issues that matter most. And, and he talks about idolatry alongside. And he refers to a statement made by Aaron. You know the story by a statement that Aaron made to the people of God as they pleaded for an idol. And so after the golden calf was established and erected before the people, which just so enthused the people. After that golden calf calf was uh, established, Aaron built an altar, remember, in front of the calf. And then he announced, hear these words, he announced, tomorrow we will have a festival to the Lord. In other words... There were two altars uh, constructed right alongside each other, one the golden calf, the other an altar to God, and folks, folks could choose to worship one or the other, or better yet, or so they thought, they could simply move back and forth and worship both. So Colson states, we are to worship the Lord our God with all our heart, all our mind, all our soul, exclusively. He goes on, however, we also worship a lot of other things in life, including our reputation, our money, our family, our dreams for our kids. He said all of it is worshiping something alongside God. And so why do I share this? I share it primarily because it reminds me and maybe you that, that I have to be careful not to worship things alongside God even when I pray and work for God. For me, it may, be, it may come in like the state of the church. Or what people think about the state of the church. It may be the state of my family and what people think about the state of my family. It may be that rush. You know what I'm talking about, that rush that comes with the praise of men. I can get, if I'm not careful, I can get caught up in these things that easily nudge me 
uh, away from the altar of God to that altar that's sitting right next to the altar of God. What are the golden calves in your life? What are the things you're prone to idolize while attempting to worship God even as you pray and work for God? And so each of us is faced with this verse. We're each faced with with this fundamental, all-important truth that the world and all that is in it exists for God and His glory, not for me and mine. And so when we put our ambitions ahead of God's, we are saying that we know more than He knows. And when we put, uh, uh, that, that we see more than He sees, or that we desire our will more than His. You know, I just so appreciate, you all do, You know that we've got a brother in our midst who is battling cancer. And we're going to pray for him next Sunday, during Sunday service. We're going to pray and we're going to anoint him with oil. He and his wife battling cancer. And every... (laughs) Every... Every, every time I ask, how's it going? What can I do for you? His reply is, I want God to be honored as I walk this road. I want the name of Jesus Christ to be known and cherished and exalted and received and embraced and believed as I walk this road. We have to ask ourselves if Jesus, I mean, Jesus' whole ministry, his whole earthly life was concerned for the glory of God. And so we have to ask ourselves if Jesus was motivated in life and ministry by concern for the glory of God, should not that be our motivation as well? East Parkway. God is faithful. God is faithful. And he's faithful to all his purposes and to all his people, to each one of his people, each of his beloved sons and daughters. And we have here two powerful promises for this Christian life we live. So participate. Participate 
in the work. Participate in what Jesus is doing in your lives right now. Don't fight it. Enter into that work that Jesus is doing in your lives right now and in the lives of others around you. And then pray according to His will, knowing that He is entirely able and without any limitation whatsoever when we exalt His name to the glory of God our Father. Amen? Amen. God, that is our prayer. That is my prayer. That is our prayer. That you would strengthen, deepen, make make. Make large and strong our belief so that we can take you at your word and receive these promises for the encouragement they are and for the way in which they really empower us and embolden our work, our Christian work in this world and in our own lives and the way in which they inform our prayers. We bless you. So grateful for you. So thankful for Jesus. So grateful for the Holy Spirit who indwells each and every child of God. Will you teach us each day to walk in step with the Spirit for the name of Christ and the glory of our Father. Amen.